Well, good morning. Today, um, again, I'm carrying on with uh, the research that I did on the poly roots of many of these words. It's interesting even uh, looking at it from a simply Sanskrit perspective as well. Uh, I'm actually... I'm actually procrastinating on finishing the book uh, from the Joe Rogan experience. Um, the author uh, escapes me currently. Uh, the book is Breath, or Breathe. I can't quite remember. Again, I don't script any of my podcasts. I apologize for um, what a meandering stroll they tend to be. Frustrating for many, uh, but if you just get into them like a warm bath... Um, as opposed to uh, uh, cliff notes, uh, you might understand it a little bit better. But further to that, I will actually make sure to finish the book Breathe. <clears throat> uh, the reason why I haven't is because it's really, it doesn't have a lot of uh, great detail. Uh, so what I've gone and done is I even picked up that one book I mentioned uh, that's about uh, Chinese breathing. They attribute it to Taoist. Uh, I argue it's actually uh, yogic, and you'll get what I mean by that in a moment. Uh, so what am I getting at here? Pranayama. I've mentioned this before, but uh, relating specifically to uh, the Joe Rogan experience, I think the gentleman's name was Nestor, but don't quote me on that. He wrote the book Breathe. Uh, you can take a look. It was uh, a Joe Rogan experience episode from uh, not too long back. He mentioned um, the yoga of psychic heat. Um, it's interesting on, on a number of different fronts. Uh, he mentions the Tibetan name for it, Tumo. Uh, also interesting, uh, because I don't know if he realizes that the yoga of psychic heat uh, is also shared by the Kundalini uh, tradition. And... Whether they are the same tradition as what I'm going to read from here, which is a book uh, that's well over 100 years old, uh, and it is some of the very few sources we have on Tumo. Tumo is a tantric practice, specifically Tibetan. Uh, it's a Tibetan version of the Kunda, Kundalini. Uh, that's actually interesting too, right? Uh, Kundalini. Uh, how you pronounce it properly, but Kundalini Yoga uh, has a number of these practices. And then, honestly, uh, it mentions here these uh, tantric practices that are used together uh, to achieve the final ends. The remainder of these practices, uh, as example here, the doctrine of the illusory body, uh, the doctrine of the dream state, we've discussed that ourselves. Uh, the doctrine of the after-death state, right? And finally, the doctrine of consciousness transference. All of them, if you notice, save for Tumo, the doctrine of psychic heat, are actually bardo states, interestingly enough. Something we discussed in the previous Joe Rogan experience uh, when he was talking about uh, the benefits and the power of those uh, bardo states, the between waking and a sleep state, the sleep state, and then uh, honestly, of course, he's not going to talk about some of the, uh, you know, between death and life states, uh, and of course, not understand the power of the awake state. Why? Because the power that lies in the awakened 
Bardo lies in utilizing the awareness or the prana paramita, the perfection of wisdom. Thus, you achieve this extraordinary power or the awakened state itself becomes extraordinary. So, on that note, I'm just going to read a little bit of the doctrine of the psychic heat, tumo. Uh, so, it's a tantric practice signifying a peculiar bodily heat, a warmth of a psycho a physical character generated by yogic means. According to the secret lore, the word tumul refers to a method of extracting prana. There's that prana again, energy, uh, translated uh, into Chinese uh, as energy and breath because it did mean both, but not at the same time, but interchangeably, similar to dharma, a uh, multi-use word. But I go on... Uh, it says, from the inexhaustible pranic reservoir in nature is where we're meant to extract that prana. Not dissimilar from jikang. This is why I mentioned jikang. If you look at jikang and uh, gung fu as it flowed from there, uh, it was taught by Bodhidharma, who was a southern Indian, arguably. Uh, and he was taught this tradition of yoga, but also um, the middle way, this uh, Nalanda tradition or uh, Chittamatran, this mind-only type school, but certainly not ignoring yoga practice. It says you store this prana, which in Jikang, as I said, uh, you can absorb through the feet. But again, it is a matter of proper practice. Again, I find it funny. You can see since Bodhidharma or many Indian sages were known to have traveled uh, through the area that we're talking about here, Indonesia and Malaysia, you know, all these different locales before eventually arriving in China, which was the normal way. The overland route was a little bit crazy. It would be much easier to sail, particularly in the case of Bodhidharma, who lived in a trading uh, um, uh, sailors. I mean, he was surrounded by sailors, so it was really no big deal for him to hitch a ride. So I just want to mention once again, this is not dissimilar from Qigong, which is, as I said, attributed to Taoism. But when you see its root in Hinduism, I laugh. I laugh like I laugh at uh, Pyro, uh, who was so arrogant uh, after a visit, I say third uh, century AD, after a visit to India, India, a continent with uh, a long history of sharing and even developing um, like a superposition philosophy, meaning uh, take a, the best of a couple ideas and create a new or one that was just evolved from previous thoughts. But here's Pyro, Pyro so arrogant to think that he went home and developed this independent thought system which then was translated and brought back to India and influenced Madhyamaka, um, Yogacara, and, and uh, Chittamatran, and no, arguably even the entire Nalanda uh, tradition. This university uh, was set up because somebody read Pyro's work and his philosophy. Come on. So I go on uh, with the doctrine of psychic heat. Oh, I apologize. This is from Tibetan Yoga and Secret Doctrines, edited by uh, Ivan Wentz. So we're looking, you know, 120 to 140 years ago, depending on when he actually published it. The, you can look it up. I uh, can't remember. So I'll go on. And he says, this system, 
invisible to all save those possessed of clairvoyant vision. Again, another one of these extraordinary powers. They, or is, the psychic counterpart of physical nervous system. Right? So what they're talking about is that dhyana, right? So that's training of the mind. So you must be an adept uh, in the training of the mind, obviously, first. Its nerve channels are called, in Tibetan, sas, and in Sanskrit, nadi. Now, they were talking, uh, again, about uh, the chakras and the energy channels. In China, they call them the meridians. So, again, a lot of this that we attribute to Taoism arguably could uh, be yogic in origin, Indian, maybe even right, uh, Turk... Persian, somewhere from the north. So, really, it's kind of funny uh, that there isn't just, uh, you know, the white man's arrogance uh, that we developed our philosophies and cultures independent of some of these other cultures. And it's just as arrogant, uh, say, the yellow arrogance to believe that, for example, that uh, Asia developed independent of the Indian subcontinent or Greece or Europe. Uh, I mean, I've mentioned before, possibly, that there's evidence that the Vikings were able to trade uh, all the way into uh, the, um, the, uh, the, the Silk Route. So from, from uh, Scandinavia, the North Sea, all the way to the, the China Sea, whether they sailed to Shanghai, because it's interesting, the international settlement had been an international port uh, for uh, centuries before modern history. Uh, but whether the Vikings had traded into the Silk Route or even traveled the Silk Route themselves or possibly more likely sailed all the way. But once again, this all belies the fact that we all <laughs> suffer from this ego to believe we're different or special and there's no way that we developed interdependently. <laughs> See what I did there? But I go on. Uh, and he talks about uh, these nerve channels that you have to work with uh, within the body as well as the mind. Not unlike I said, Einstein talks about space and time being connected. Uh, but they do operate independent. Kind of like what we're talking about here. Shunyata emptiness is about interdependent or dependent origination. Right? And I'll go on further. And he does begin to talk about prana again and chakras, right? And references the Tibetan Book of the Dead. And the next paragraph says that according to the text, in practicing the art of Tumul, the yogin must employ very elaborate visualizations, meditations, postures, breathing, directing of thought, training of the psychic nerve system, that's what we mentioned before, and physical exercises. Right? Not at all dissimilar to yoga and jikang, as taught by, arguably as taught by bodhidharma. Right? Training of the psychic nerve system, the physical exercise. And don't forget that it mentioned before that you have to be already training the mind. And more importantly, pati pati. So you must be not only studying the dharma, but implementing it. Right? And he goes on and says, Our annotations are sufficiently numerous and detailed to serve as a commentary to afford uh, the students some practical guidance. But 
as the Tibetan gurus emphasize, it is highly desirable for a neophyte, prior to beginning the practice of Tumol, to ob- obtain preliminary initiation and personal guidance from a master of the art. And he'll go on and talk about um, how you recognize, uh, uh, how you go on and recognize uh, someone, uh, and actually later he mentions they're in the order of cotton-clad ones. Why does he say that? Because they don't wear furs and woolen garments, right? Are they never wearing furs or woolen garments or seeking artificial external heat? That's how the masters of the art are recognized. It's funny, eh? But he goes on and says that the yogin must also observe uh, strict sexual continence, for it is chiefly upon the yogically transmuted sex energy that proficiency in tumo depends. And once again, not self-servingly, but I remind you we've discussed this in a previous podcast. Actually, we've discussed it more than once. One, where we talked about uh, the golden flower. That is commonly considered a Taoist treatise. But as you can see here, is it possibly yogic in origins? Right? Uh, And the other side of this uh, is uh, we've talked about the Taoist sexual practices of, of, I apologize, not sexual practices per se. We've talked about um, uh, developing sexual energy, right? And how they use it, uh, the Taoists. um, There's actually a sexual energy, Ji Kung, believe it or not. Right? And so I find it funny that they mention this. And he goes on and says that actually practicing must not, not... must not be done inside or near dwelling of a householder, preferably in some place of a hermitage, right? maybe in a cave. Right? A yogin aiming at mastery of the art may remain in such solitary hermitage for a very long time. See no human being. Right? And using, performing these yogic exercises early in the morning before sunrise when nature and the earth's magnetic currents are apt to be the least disturbed once the art is mastered it can be practiced anywhere at any time I love this because this is the practice why do we get up early in the morning and sit on a cushion somewhere quiet in the corner not because the earth's magnetic currents are more calm but because the, the, the everything is more quiet right we do it because we find it easier to still the mind when it's not so loud there I go again referencing some of our previous podcasts right Right? And again, the goal, as I said before, sitting is a neophyte practice. Why? Because once the art is mastered, it can be practiced anywhere and at any time. And I would actually argue that it's not once the art is mastered, it can be. Once the art is mastered, it must be. The goal, the initial goal, is to bring this practice into everyday life. A new poly compound word I'd like to introduce you to is satipati. Pati. That's S-A-T-I, which means to remember or mindfulness. And Pati Pati. That's P-A-T-I, P-A-T-T-I. So that's studying the Dharma and implementing it as practice. Right? And as I said before, it goes on and talks about uh, Milarepa. Uh, and he was talking about warming breath of angels, whereas they raiment pure and soft. Now, you can read that as... Uh, an invitation 
to the doctrine of psychic heat, or you can read that as an invitation to let none of the colors, the sights, the sounds of the phenomenal world uh, to distract you, for you to be the charioteer. And he says, when the probationary training ends and the neophyte feels confident of success, right? The following account of such a testing is given by Madame David Neal. The reason why I mention this is that is uh, the opera singer, the middle-aged lady that traveled to Tibet at a time that no women or foreigners were allowed. That is the lady that the author of Breathe mentioned without mentioning her name. That's the lady he mentioned on the Joe Rogan experience. She's interesting. But even more interesting is she's a neophyte herself. Who was her mentor? Uh, a lady by the name of Helena Petrovska uh, Blavatsky. Madame Blavatsky. Now, who was she a contemporary of? She was a contemporary of Olcott, Ivan Wentz, and more. Uh, gentlemen who were seeking occult knowledge. And amongst them were this Madame David Neal, Madame Blavatsky. And that's a little insight to my early days, when particularly in Canada, but the West, there is very little to be had uh, beyond, say, you know, basic uh, information on Tantric Buddhism. I consider myself a Yoga Karen a tantric Buddhist, when there was very little information on this subject, um, I was able to turn to Madame Levatsky, uh, Madame David Neal, uh, the Buddhist and the Pali Society in France, and uh, to use my ability to read and learn in French. In fact, I would invite you to maybe, in, you know, invite uh, bilingual speakers to translate some wonderful documentaries on uh, on Madame David Neal. Alexandra David Neal is her name, and it's a hyphenated last name if you want to look her up. And she wrote a book with mystics and magicians in Tibet. But I'll warn you, not all of her books were fact. A lot. She did some fiction. Again, she was trying to, not unlike the Tibetans, awaken this sense of wonder so that we could awaken to this wisdom that's uh, innate in all of us. Right? And it quotes from Madame David Neal. Upon a frosty winter night, those who think themselves capable of victoriously enduring the test, they're led to the shore of a river or a lake. If all the streams are frozen in the region, a hole is made in the ice. A moonlit night, or a moonlight night, with a hard wind blowing is chosen. Such nights are not rare in Tibet during the winter months. The neophytes sit on the ground, cross-legged and naked. Sheets are dipped in the icy water. Each man wraps himself in one of them and must dry it on his body. As soon as the sheet has become dry, it is again dipped in the water and placed on the novice's body to be dried as before. The operation goes on in that way until daybreak. Then he who has dried the largest number of sheets is acknowledged the winner of the competition. So here I find this funny. The Heart Sutra teaches us, and I know it's a later 
uh, a later uh, uh, treatise, I can say the same of the Lanka Vatara. That teaches us there is no attainment, right? You simply do or do not. In this case, I find it funny that it becomes a competition. I also find it funny that the idea here is simply to dry sheets, right? So really, the only extraordinary power, once again, is our underestimation of the power of the human mind. I'll remind us the incredible strength of the human placebo, that in nearly as many instances as not, that the mind can produce the identical results as a medication. And I'll go on. She talks about the size of the sheets being different sizes, and again talks about Milarepa, the cotton-clad one, uh, meaning he mastered the art of Tmol under the guidance of his guru, Marpa. And then, of course, his disciples as well. And it goes on, it says, in addition to the drying of wet sheets, another test to ascertain their degree of warmth, which which the yogin can generate, consists in making them sit naked in snow, a quantity of snow melted under and around them, indicating their proficiency. Again, two things, no attainment, and secondly, we see this in a modern viral sense, that we have a gentleman who has appropriated this practice and making it, again, using ego as the driver, thinking that he's special, when in reality, everybody has the power to achieve these extraordinary powers only because we undersell our own abilities, thus oversell the results. Not unlike the... uh, the stars in the sky that I mentioned in yesterday's podcast. We're awed by all of these stars, and yet we never see all the space between. And the text goes on and says, There are at the present time adepts of the Tumo and Hermitage in Tibet, many of whom, followers of Milarepa, in the order of the cotton-clad ones. This is un- undoubtedly true, is the assertion. This is over a hundred years ago, remember. More than one European has occasionally caught glimpses of such aesthetics. And he goes on and talks about having traveled into the Himalayas uh, with a group of Hindus who were clad in uh, nothing or uh, barely nothing. He talks about how they were on their way to Hermitage in the Himalayas, a cave by the name of Amar Nath. Uh, And if you look that up, you'll hear this is actually a commonly referred to cave. It's uh, kind of like a shared holy place, not unlike Jerusalem. Amarnath is uh, sacred to many traditions. He goes on and says, wherein the holy of holies is a natural lingam. The great word lingam, no longer used, means a phallus. It's a lingam of ice, sacred to Shiva, the lord of the world. And I'll read the note. Shiva, the personification of forces in nature, making for destruction, is the lord of regeneration, and so his symbol is the phallus, or the male organ of generation, as it was of Osiris, the Egyptian deity associated with human fertility. I find that funny because you can see a lot of, um, you know, shared... uh, Well, take a look at uh, Egyptian lore. It, is, is, uh, it uh, rings um, similar to a lot of other lore, believe it or not. I won't even specifically just say Indian, because, I mean, 
you know, it shares shares uh, myth and uh, metaphor with many, many cultures. Okay, and I'll just go on and say it also mentions, as I said, Shiva, uh, but as we've mentioned in previous podcasts, Shiva is um, has a penchant for overdoing it. Thus, his consort, Parvati, known for her balancing influence on Shiva. Again, the destroyer, but also the creator. So these ascetics had come to the cave to worship Shiva. And they did almost an identical uh, practice, wrapping themselves in these sheets. And he goes on and says, at the time he knew nothing of the Tibetan art of generating the extraordinary body warmth. Consequently, he didn't question these Hindus' aesthetics uh, as to their remarkable hardiness, attributing it to their perhaps masters of Hatha yoga. Funny, because Hatha was a later development. And then he goes on and finishes by saying he'd witnessed it a number of times, and he'd even witnessed um, another version of this extraordinary powers called Pancha Duni, the five fires, in which a yogini, or a yogin, will sit surrounded, and what he says is by the five, surrounded by the, in the four directions, and the fifth being the heat of the sun, and he sees them untouched by these externals, and what he calls, uh, let's see here, and in some of the devil dancing ceremonies of Ceylon fire, trodden upon and grasped by the devil dancers without harm, in virtue of the use of mantras called fire cooling mantras. And uh, prior, when he was talking about uh, the practices, the yoga practice of Panchaduni, he said he had witnessed and it had been attested uh, by many Europeans. Um, seeing their immunity from the heat. So, again, initially, I just wanted to share this practice, right? Very esoteric, because uh, there's very few who have even written about it. But once you start to research the yogic uh, practice, you get an idea that it's, it's, it's not, even, not even meant to be an attainment. It's so common, even back... Uh, to the original practitioners, they were guilty of treating it like an attainment as well. But again, the real attainment was personal, right? We look at it from a Western egoic perspective, and we think, well, yeah, the uh, the most devout was celebrated as the most um, uh, developed practitioner of the art. But you got to remember, it's about intention. If you reside, hopefully, parasamgate, on the other shore, away from these egoic influences, if you reside in that truth, that awareness, then when you sit down and practice your tumo with all of your buddies, it's not a competition to see who's better. It is simply encouraging each other on that path to liberation. Right? That's that pati pati. Right? It's not just studying the doctrine of psychic heat, but it's implementing it and carrying it with you into 
everyday practice.